Hello, and welcome to Execute Chapter 66, a Star Wars fiction podcast where we discuss canon, legends, and beyond. Tonight, we will be talking about Heir to the Jedi by Kevin Hearn. We'll see how that goes. My name is Beth Van Dusen, and with me, of course, as always, are Ryan Schweck and Chad J. Schonk. Over to you, Chad. This is your bi-weekly reminder that this is a book club and not a review show. We are going to assume you have either done the reading or don't care about spoilers. We may spoil anything else Star Wars over the course of the conversation, so you've been warned about that, too. Ryan, catch us up. Uh, hasn't been too crazy lately. Mandalorian, uh, we talked about, I think, an episode or two ago, trying to figure out when it was going to start shooting, and they confirmed that it starts within the next month or so. Carl Weathers came out and said it. In video game news, they are going to release on the Switch and the Xbox um, some combos of some old games. Um, They're going to put out the Jedi Knight collection with some just kind of updates to it. And then the other one that I'm a little more interested in is that update of Racer and Republic Commando. It's going to be like a package, which I've always loved Racer. They're not full remasters, are they? They're not full remasters. Um, okay. I think they tweaked them a little bit and updated Because a full so. remaster of Republic Commando, I'd be happy with. Racer looks real good. They had updated Racer before. I forgot for which system. So those will be fun. They'll come out within a couple of months. EA announced they are delaying Hunters which was that kind of, I think it was more of a turn-based kind of RPG kind of thing they were doing. Um, but they have officially said they're delaying that to put all their efforts into the sequel for Fallen Order. So they are trying to push that game out as quick as they can. Well, I would hope so. That always works well. No kidding. They would just put out stupid 1313. That game is like almost finished. <laughs> <laughs> they, they would have to update it so much, though, to catch it up to modern day standards. They really would. Uh, over on the comic side, they got the official uh, announcement of Crimson Rain, which will be the second. Uh, I didn't realize that War of the Bounty Hunters is apparently the first part of a trilogy of plans that Soul has. So you've got War of the Bounty Hunters. The follow-up will be this Crimson Rain that stars Lady Kira. You know, the cover, we see Vader and Palpatine. Uh, so it's going to be, I guess, her interacting with them and her uh, rise through Crimson Dawn and kind of being in charge of that. So I'm curious to see what the third part will be. I, you know, it'll look good. I do have to interject and say that my uh, high school buddy, Stephen Cummings, is doing the art for Crimson Rain. So I'm very excited for him. Yeah. It's not his first Marvel book, but it's his first Star Wars book. Yeah, it sparked some rumors that they're interested in bringing, um, uh, what's her face? Amelia Clark. Yes, Amelia Clark back somehow. Uh, so that could be good. I think. Why you know, wouldn't you? Yeah, there's been a big push, a, a vocal push for people that want some more solo era kind of stuff, a sequel to Solo or Disney Plus or something. So we've also got Lando coming, right? So yeah, that's an opportunity for something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, over on the Disney Plus side, okay, I want to again reiterate spoilers, like Chad said. <laughs> If you don't want to hear anything about Obi-Wan, just skip ahead a little bit. Beth, cover your ears. I want to hear everything about Obi-Wan. Not long before we, if we started recording, some concept art 
has leaked from Obi-Wan, and it is some drawings of Vader and what he is going to look like. It is unmasked, Hayden Christensen, all cut up, like he's going to look in the uh, back to tank, which originally was planned for Rogue One, and we didn't get it, uh, and they are going to do it. The leaked art shows him, you know, missing his arms and the scars and all that, and also what his tank is going to look like. People kind of wonder why well, get Hayden Christensen if you're just going to have Vader in the armor. Well, that's gonna, we're going to see him. Uh, over on the fake hollow, <laughs> the big new rumor is that Finn is coming back. There are rumors that Finn, they're going to look at doing some sort of either Disney Plus or possible movie with Finn. John Bodea, he very publicly got angry at Star Wars and said that he would not do anything without Kennedy or Abrams. And people have kind of looked and his tune has changed on social media. And people think that there was a meeting and basically with Kennedy and they kind of made up squash the beef. And now they're interested in doing a more, a little more with Finn. What they're talking about it possibly being is a combination of Finn before the Force Awakens, kind of how he got conscripted into the First Order, and then some like back end after, kind of where he goes after. We'll see. I think if that's going to be the first thing they do to follow up the sequel trilogy, Finn is probably not the first one I would pick. But I see. I think he's the first one I would pick because he got John Boyega is a very charismatic actor, a very fun actor to watch. I think they did his character dirty. I don't want to see him conscripted as a stormtrooper. I think we've seen that. Listen, man, if this is the future, despite all my problems with it, this is the future. If this is what happens in the future of Star Wars, yeah, tell me more. I yeah. want to see Finn becoming a Jedi. I, I'll, I'll watch that show. If it's about Finn becoming a Jedi, I'll watch that. I mean, I'd be kind of curious to see, like, how does a guy like Finn end up a trooper? See, I always thought he was taken as a kid. Well, I assume so, too. That's what I assumed also. Yeah. But you would think, like, when we see him, you know, it's kind of the first time he's shooting his gun and stuff and he's a little old for that so i don't know yeah, maybe if and, and you know i'll talk about it a little bit when we get to the comics but like they're leaning into some of the characters from rise of skywalker uh, i just think like if if we're going to not, not ignore the sequels but like and we don't have to embrace them but just do what we did with the prequels which is accept them <laughs> Right, which is kind of what happened with the prequels is people kind of just grew to accept them. We'll eventually grow to accept the sequels. Finn is a, a character that I think they failed a little bit, but John Boyega is an actor that can totally carry a movie and totally tell that story. And so to see him, you know, because I think one of his one of his problems was that there was all this implication. I think maybe he was even told he was force sensitive mm -hmm. and they never even made that clear in the movie. Maybe in the way that they're like giving Hayden Christensen this little run on Kenobi, even though one would argue that I'd rather have Matt Lanter do it. Absolutely. But they're kind of giving characters little mulligan, actors little mulligans, you know, um, mm -hmm. like they've done with Jimmy Smits and stuff where they're like, you know, we know we know that the things didn't work out the first time around, but come back and play. Maybe they'll do that with Boyega. And I think that would be nice. You know, I don't think a movie. I think a show would be good. Yeah. Um, and then our last bit of stuff that's been going around, um, J.W. Rensler, who was a historian at Lucasfilm, most popular for the making of books, passed away at the end of July. You know, his making of Star Wars, if you've never read it or looked through it, is 
an amazing book. He did the making of Revenge of the Sith. He did a lot of those making of. He did a um, Indiana Jones book. Yeah, making Rares of the Lost Ark. Yeah. yeah. I, I do think it's really interesting how, you know, that making of Star Wars book, how it came about is one of those really cool things. He was working as a librarian at the ranch um, or with the librarians at the ranch. And Steve Sansweet, who was then the director of fan relations. So he was, you know, really big at the time. Proprietor of Rancho Obi-Wan. Mm-hmm. He basically like gave a tip that's like, hey, in here, there's these transcripts. And they found at Skywalker Ranch four boxes full of old legal pads. And they're called the Lost Interviews. But they were 50 recorded interviews between 1975 and 1978 from this publicist that documented the creation of Star Wars from George Lucas. He's got, there's interviews in there with Ford, Fisher, Hamill, Kurtz. And so that's where they all got this. And it was all recorded before Star Wars even came out. And so that's part of what makes that making Star Wars so awesome is that he was able to find these books or interviews. I've read Making of Star Wars and Making of Empire Strikes Back. They are books that anyone should be proud to have on their coffee table because mm-hmm. they're just big, giant, enormous volumes that are fun to look through. But they're also really compelling reads. There's things in there that, as someone who knows a lot about Star Wars, was completely blown away by. And you said he wrote a couple episodes of The Clone Wars? Yeah, he wrote two for the uh, for season six, the Netflix season. He wrote the... Uh, Mace Jar Jar episodes where they go to the planet and the people are disappearing, the queen's disappearing and all that. So he wrote those two. That's cool. I didn't even know he got a chance to do that, but uh, yeah, no, uh, I just thought we should, we should definitely mention it because the, he, he, he was a considered a star Wars historian. Yeah. He's a big one. Chad, what's going on over in the comics? War of the bounty hunters is still happening. Of course, beginning to feel like it's going on a little too long. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know when it's going to end. I know Crimson Rain is in October. Yes. So if this is going to on till October, I know that's only a few more, you know, six weeks or whatever, but still feels like it's going on a little long. Um, but we got Bounty Hunters number 15 featuring the continuing adventures of Dengar and Valance. I'm just going to list Dengar first because he's way more interesting than Valance. There was the Four Lom and Zuckus one shot written by Daniel Older. Which I thought was pretty good. Showed a little bit more of the relationship between the two of them. War of the Bounty Hunters number three by Charles Sewell, the main book, where we discover that Kira may have picked up some skills from her old boss. Star Wars 16, also by Sewell, focuses on Luke, and it's all about him on his way to confront Vader at the uh, Han Solo auction and whether or not he's ready, and a lot of reflection on where he's at as a Jedi. Dr. Aphra 13, where Aphra is rightfully scared for her life when she finds herself in the same room as Darth Vader. If you know anything about Dr. Aphra, the biggest mistake she's ever made in her life is she betrayed Darth Vader. And that's kind of the motivating factor behind her character. <laughs> and then Darth Vader 15, which I thought was really good, which is all about Ochi of Bastoon, speaking of leaning into the sequels. And it's one of the only sequel characters getting a lot of love right now. Uh, like you said, there's a, you know, if, if it is related to the Lando series, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of surprised Holdo hasn't shown up in any of the books yet. Yeah, like it's weird. 
And then, of course, the High Republic is also going on in the main book. Um, there's uh, We had High Republic number eight, where Avar Chris is in trouble. But don't worry, Keeve Trennis is on the case. Uh, that's written by Kevin Scott. And then there were actually three issues of High Republic Adventures that have come out. There was the free comic book day issue, uh, which features more of Ram, Lula, and Zine as they navigate the attack on uh, Lonisa City. So it's kind of contiguous with the last book. The main book, number seven by Older, where they're just fighting the Drengir. Um, and uh, a new miniseries called The Monster at Temple Peak, uh, also by Kevin Scott, which is about our favorite non-Jedi, Ty Yorick, and her earlier adventures as a saber for hire. To me, it is interesting that right now there's only two types of Star Wars comics. There's War of the Bounty Hunter and there's High Republic. And if you don't like either of those things, you don't have a Star Wars comic to read right now. <laughs> and you kind of got to read it all. I read behind because I read on the app. But yeah, you have to read every single one. And you've got to read them in order. Like you've got to be careful sometimes reading on the app at least that you're reading them in the order you're supposed to read them. Which, which is fine. I enjoy reading it all except for Bounty Hunters. Uh, although I will say Dengar has made that book a little more fun. So uh, we talked about this earlier, but I just do want to talk about it on the show. For all the hate we give Valance, I would like to point out <laughs> that we have learned, and I bet people knew this, and I did not, I don't know, Chad didn't either, that no. Valance is actually not a new creation. He is from the Marvel comic from, you know, way, way back when. Issue 16 in 1978. Yeah, in 78. Uh, it does not change wow. the fact that Valance sucks. He just sucks longer. Yeah. <laughs> We were joking. If you, if you want to go back and look at uh, where he debuted, apparently he was Star Wars Punisher. Like, yeah, the cover is 16. He looks just like the Punisher. And he's on there with the other great character from that era, Jackson, the bunny rabbit. <laughs> I think it shows a lot that there is a Jackson action figure, but there is no Valance action figure. Yeah. That says a lot. And Jackson was a giant green bunny rabbit. Mm-hmm. No, my father didn't fight in the wars. He was a navigator on a spice freighter. That's what your uncle told you. He didn't hold with your father's ideals, thought he should have stayed here and not gotten involved. You fought in the Clone Wars? Yes. I was once a Jedi Knight, the same as your father. I wish I'd known him. He was the best star pilot in the galaxy. And a cunning warrior. I understand you've become quite a good pilot yourself. And he was a good friend. Which reminds me. I have something here for you. Your father wanted you to have this when you were old enough, but your uncle wouldn't allow it. He feared you might follow old Obi-Wan on some damn fool idealistic crusade like your father did. What is it? It's your father's lightsaber. This is the weapon of a Jedi Knight. Not as clumsy or random as a blaster. An elegant weapon. But a more civilized age. Our book tonight is about Luke Skywalker. Now, when I was a kid, when I was like, I was six or seven or whatever, you remember those um, Halloween costumes that were like vinyl plastic things that came in like a vacuum sealed bag that if you put a match to them, it would have gone up in an instant. I know exactly which one you're <laughs> going to talk about because I had it. So I, I had my X-Wing pot, my, my Luke Skywalker X-Wing jumpsuit. Mm -hmm. And I did that for Halloween. Of course, I wore it after Halloween. It came with a little mask that was awful with the thing, but it was the coolest. I just, I'm just glad I never got next to a roaring flame. If you go back, you know, I've got a Star Wars one sheet from the first movie up in my basement here and front and center 
pointing a blaster at me as Luke Skywalker. When you read the novelization for Star Wars or Splinter of the Mind's Eye above the title, what does it say? It says, from the adventures of Luke Skywalker. Luke is the main character of the original trilogy. Just he's the hero. He's the protagonist. It's his story. The prequels kind of took that away from him a little bit by now making it Vader's story, Anakin's story, and Luke just becoming a part of that. And we'll we'll get to talking about the sequels in a minute. <laughs> but but one thing I've noticed is we have on this show, we have 33 episodes, not including The Mandalorian. That's 36 books and one audio drama. We have read, up until tonight, two books that featured Luke Skywalker as a lead character. Shadows of the Empire, so ick, mm-hmm. and Splinter of the Mind's Eye, double ick. <laughs> Those are the only two Luke Skywalker books we've read. In the old canon, in Expanded Universe, Luke actually was the center. They still kept him as the lead character. There were tons of books off to the side, but when you read the mainline books, the New Jedi Order books, whatever like the main event that was going on, the blockbuster books, they were about Luke. The earlier books were about him building his New Jedi Order. Uh, and then later books were about him maintaining it and leading it and eventually leaving it. In the same way that Anakin's fall was related directly to the fall of the Republic. The success of the New Republic and later the Galactic Alliance went hand in hand with Luke's success as a Jedi Master. But since Disney took over, and maybe it's just me, they've dumped him. Other than than a, a notable cameo on a television show. He is strong with the Force, but talent without training is nothing. I will give my life to protect the child but he will not be safe until he masters his abilities. Luke has become, he's in the comics and stuff. And we have this book, but we'll get to why I don't think this book counts. But why do you guys think we haven't seen a whole lot of Luke? We haven't read a canon Luke book other than this one. Where's our bloodlines? So I, I really thought a lot about it and really thought about like old canon too. Cause you're right. Luke is like, you know, heir of the empire, you know, all that Jedi Academy and, you know, all the mess. He is the main character. But when you think back, is Luke the most interesting part of those books? Yes, it centers around him. But when you talk about those books, people don't really talk about Luke that much. And I think the reason is, at least from what I can think of, is that Luke you know, is Luke is the hero's journey, right? He is your main character that goes from farm boy to Jedi master. And that completes that story. And I think they struggle with, well, all right, he's gone through this whole arc, which in a way that Leia and Han, while they go through their arcs in the movies, there's stuff past that, you know, like you end with Han who, now has this future story you can see of, well, now I'm in the rebellion or the alliance, like, and how do I go from there? Whereas Luke has kind of completed that journey. I think you would see the same problem if they went with Rey past the sequel trilogy, because she kind of completed that arc too. Admittedly, it's pretty much the exact same arc as Luke. (laughs) Um, It is. It is. I mean, to a T, it really is. To me, at the end of, end of Return of the Jedi, yes, his hero's journey is complete. But I guess I'm just too caught up in however many years of the expanded universe where Return of the Jedi, to me, didn't just mean him. Right? It meant that he was going to usher in the Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. One thing that I don't like about New Canon it is it has deprived us of what I, one thing I loved, which was the New Jedi Order. 
uh, not not the series, the New Jedi Order, but the actual Luke's actual Jedi Order. There were a lot of great characters. You know, we've 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 talked about the sequels enough, but I just um, I think there is more. I think there is more. And and yes, you're right. He's not the most interesting thing. Why is that? Why? Uh, you may be correct, but why do you think, Beth, that writers have a hard time with him? I was trying to, I, I mean, I agree with Schweck. That's exactly what I was thinking. It was that that's his story is done. And there's so much of a, a life passed to Leia or to Han. You know, they did things before. Whereas with Luke, I mean, what, what do you got to tell about him growing up? running from monsters and, and sand people on Tatooine. He lived on a moisture farm. He didn't do anything. There's no backstory. There's no history to explore with how he grew up to become the person who saves the galaxy or helps to save the galaxy because really Anakin did it after all. I don't know. I feel like this, the prequels did take away some of some of his power. I mean, not power, but... It's prominence. Yes, because it, it's not about him anymore. And, you know, ultimately he helps Vader to save the galaxy. But I think the prequels did him a disservice by giving giving it a reason to not be about Luke. Because he isn't he isn't easy to figure out clearly by reading this book. Yeah, well, we'll get to that. <laughs> people, people have a hard time trying to figure out, okay, well, what is Luke beyond farm boy Jedi? Well, but I see, I think that's really purposeful, right? Luke is the audience kind of stand-in or who you could be, right? As a kid, I'm not a princess. I'm not a space pirate. You could have been a princess, Shwek. I believe in you. (laughs) But you know what? In the 80s, we couldn't. We weren't allowed to in the 80s. Being the kid, you know, looking at the stars, you know, and wanting superpowers and stuff, like that is who the kids are supposed to want to be. And I think he's written in the movies, at least as maybe not as strong as a character for that reason, because that allows him or you to feel that you could be him. He's a cipher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There is a little bit of that. I can, I can see that. He's our Mary Sue. Well, he is. He is a Mary Sue spoiler. All characters in all action movies are Mary Sue's. (laughs) Like they all do things they shouldn't be able to do. But, uh, and, and I think you guys make fair points. Um, my only counter argument would be that I, there are several kind of Luke things from the expanded universe that I did enjoy. Mm-hmm. Like Luke. Well, yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think he's good in Heir to the Jedi. I think he's good in Dark Empire. Yeah. There are other storylines that I think, I think later on when he's the grandmaster of the new Jedi order, I think he makes some interesting decisions that aren't unlike some of the decisions he makes in the sequels. I think it, I I just want, I want bloodlines, right? I want, I want a bloodlines quality book about Luke. Like, okay. So he makes his appearance on the Mandalorian. There's five years. Uh There's five years between Jedi and the Mandalorian. What is Luke doing? I don't know why anybody doesn't want to tell those stories. And that's, it's just weird to me. I'm not saying I, I don't, and I'm not saying I have the answer. I was just looking at, I went back and I looked at all of our episodes and I'm like, we've barely talked about him because he doesn't show up in the new books. Do you think part of it is, and not to get into a discussion about all of this. Let's do it. But the treatment of Luke in the sequels is one of the things that a lot of people have the most problem with. It's very controversial. Like, yeah. And so I kind of wonder if Dizzy isn't purposely staying away from that for a little while because, you know, they're waiting for the stink to wash off a little bit. Yeah, but they brought him on the Mandalorian. But see, I wonder if that's not the start of it. 
And if we won't kind of start seeing it, they're going to form a better plan of what happened with this school. You mean have a plan? Yeah, you know. Yes. Either one. I mean, you have mentioned, I mean, you mentioned the rumor that he would be on the Lando show. Right. You know, so it, that could be part of it. I guess my problem too is, I mean, I know it's not the same, but like Mark Hamill is a secret weapon. Like as far as like PR wise, right? Like he is the most upfront, seems like the nicest, uh, mm-hmm. most kind of fan friendly guy in all of Star Wars, mm-hmm. right? He, and he wants through, to do it. He went through a period. There was a period in the 80s and the 90s where he got a little bitter. Um, I, I know for a fact, I, 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 an old friend of mine ran into him at a comic book store and he was like buying stuff with Luke on it so he could sign it and sell it on eBay. Like he, he's gone through some bad patches, but he's come back around to really, truly embrace Star Wars and Star Wars fans to to keep him out of the limelight. And, and I know it's not the same. Mark is is a, is is his own and he can't play young Luke anymore. Although I guess he did. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, you just go on YouTube and find somebody that can do it. <laughs> And I think part of the reason why is like Mark is the one whose career. Listen, Carrie Fisher intentionally didn't pursue a whole lot of acting after Star Wars was done. That wasn't that was intentional. She very, did very few movies after that. Right. She was she concentrated on writing. Harrison Ford obviously became one of the biggest movie stars of all time. Mark Hamill struggled. And part of the reason he struggled was he was so unbelievably typecast. It wasn't until he got behind the microphone and his face was off camera and he started his voice acting career. I'm not saying he did that for that reason, but. It wasn't until you could. It, it wasn't until you were like twelve episodes into Batman the animated series, and someone was like, "Did you know Mark Hamill's playing the Joker?" And so when you took away the image of him and you didn't know it was him, he's fantastic. So I think he got really pigeonholed, and it became really rough for him until he discovered his second career as a voice actor. I don't know, man. I just when I think back to me, the the op- the night I watched Star Wars for the first time, very first memory I have of that movie is Luke and Leia swinging over the chasm in the Death Star. And it was just like the perfect heroic, romantic adventure moment, movie moment. To me, he's always going to be the star of those movies. Mm-hmm. Hamill doesn't get enough credit for his performance in the movies. But I've just found it interesting as the as someone who's been on bed sheets and lunch boxes and posters and and is a is a a co- you know is a household name as much as Darth Vader is. I've always I've just found it in the Disney era now that he's kind of been put in the back seat. And I've I was just thought of, you know and you guys had some really good uh, answers as to maybe why. But it's just something that occurred to me. Like I want to see more. I want to see. <sighs> And we'll talk about this book, but I want to see a serious book <laughs> about 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 him. There's so much. Yes, you're right. His hero's journey is over, but there's so much on his shoulders at the end of Return of the Jedi. Mm-hmm. So much on his shoulders. And you can tell a good story about that. I think the expanded universe, they weren't all good, but they did tell some stories about how good that was, about how important that was, how heavy that was, how heavy mm-hmm. that burden was. Re- reading this book, I both I realized that I really miss him. This book didn't help that hmm. uh, nope. necessarily, but it's not, I think it's a good good discussion. I think you guys have some really good points. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for him to get that little renaissance because he'll always be my hero. And uh, uh, as much as I loved Han and Chewie and Leia and everybody, Luke Skywalker is the guy I wanted to save the day. And I disagree with Beth. Darth Vader does not save the universe. Luke Skywalker saves the universe. He be sappy as hell. He does it through love <laughs> and peace. Hmm. Real quick though, like. I don't want to get too deep into it, but as time has gone on, we, we, we make, we joke about not wanting to talk about less Jedi because we have differing opinions on it. Although that's been exaggerated as well. Cause my opinion is probably closer to yours than you realize. 
because over time, my tolerance for the sequel trilogy has just gone down in general. I like, I really do. I like that his last act was a nonviolent one. I, I think that that is in the Jedi spirit, right? That his last act is a nonviolent act. It's used to save people, not hurt people. And that, that he spills the last bit of his energy to, uh, to, to save his friends, to save the resistance, but he doesn't have to kill anyone or hurt anyone. I like that theoretically. It doesn't fly when you watch it. Right. It doesn't feel right. I have grown to dislike the treatment of Luke in the sequels, even though I understand how you get there. What are his role models? Yoda and Obi-Wan, what did they do when things got tough? They went and became hermits. So I see where the filmmakers, where Johnson and, and JJ were like, especially Johnson was like, well, that's what his, hero, that's what his teachers did. So that's what he's going to do. I get all that. It's not very satisfying. I think Han's death was way more affecting. Like it, 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 Han's death had weight to it. Luke's was kind of beautiful and I, I felt it in the moment, but looking back on it and then I'll, I'll, I'll beat a dead horse here. And then you have force ghosts ruin it by having him come back and have a scene where he's just talking casual like. Well, Han's death was earned. There was a buildup to it. Uh, I don't think any of us were expecting Luke to just disappear into his robes at just randomly. Well, no, it was all meant to be a surprise, though, right? It was meant to be a surprise that he wasn't really on crate. It was meant to be a surprise, you know, how he was doing it. And then I think it's a surprise to him that it's his last act. That's what's weird about it. Like, Hamill's good in that moment, but there's this weird moment where it feels like Hamill's like, oh, am I dying? I guess I'm dying, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and he's okay with it. But he, but it's, it's very, it's a very strange um, moment. Uh, and I, I think I know what Johnson was going for. But I've said a million times, and I'll say it again. Sometimes you got to just pull the X-wing out of the water. The novel plays it better. It reads. It? it reads better. Yeah, I never read the book. I read the first chapter because I heard it had the the whole like fantasy sequence of Luke, what what Luke's life would have been like if he had gotten married. Uh, so I read that, but I never read the whole book. And I agree. Like, I think it's just was what they gave him was Ray on the island. There's some little tweaks you can do in there, particularly around. I don't know if I'd say like his anger or what the script gives him that might change it some. Because I think the idea of the hermit, that's fine, is an interesting story. It's just how it was played when Ray approaches. I, yeah, I know people don't like the flipping of the lightsaber. Oh, I hate the flipping of the lightsaber. Yeah. yeah. Because if you give me a Luke, and I think no matter what happened, you know, with Luke's character, you know, the flipping of the lightsaber wouldn't happen. With Ray approaching and saying, you know, Leia sent me to get you and to get help and stuff. And Han's dead and all this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I don't care what happened at the Jedi Temple. For Luke to do that is too out of character for the way he acted in Last Jedi. At least for what I think. No, I agree. I agree. I think he's, I think it's, and we've talked about the, uh, when we, when we t- back talk to, talking about JJ's, JJ and Ryan Johnson, Kathy Kennedy's lack of a plan, the end of Force Awakens plays that moment majestically. That's a mm-hmm. gorgeous moment. It's one of John Williams' best scores ever. Best pieces of score ever. The, the step sequence in Octo. The moment where she stands up and Luke turns around, the whole audience, I don't know if you remember opening night, man, the audience lost it. Just lost it when he turns around. And it's this glorious moment. It ends with this beautiful shot. Like, it's something J.J. got right in that movie for sure, is the ending. So I agree to then go into the next movie, which, yes, is a let the past die, uh, deconstructionalist, cynical movie, to then completely change the tone is... They're real hard movies to watch back to back to back because they don't work together. When I first saw Last Jedi, I really liked it. I was okay with all that stuff because I thought that was fun. 
But if you watch them in order, if you watch them back to back to back, they just are so mismatched. Even to the point where when Force Ghost Luke shows up in the last movie and he was like, you never throw away your lightsaber. I was like, JJ, come on. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. get, you know, so it just he ended up becoming like you said, maybe this is the case. He ended up kind of becoming a like hot potato between Johnson and, and JJ. And then the Mandalorian came in and said, hey, he's out there collecting force users. And you're like, no, he's not. Well, I mean, yes, he is, but they're all dead. <laughs> uh, it, it's 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 interesting. I'm not 100% satisfied with the end of Luke Skywalker, but I also, I don't hate it, uh, but I wish it was better. That's all. Yeah. I like the idea of it, if that makes sense. Like, I like the idea of his final act as a Jedi not being one where he, uh, being one of saving people, but not actually hurting anyone, mm-hmm. except for maybe... Kylo's feelings. So this is a long summary because this book has a lot of plot and a lot of things going on, although at the end of the day, it doesn't feel like it. From Wikipedia, the term Women in Refrigerators was coined by writer Gail Simone as a name for a website in early 1999 during online discussions about comic books with friends. It refers to an incident in Green Lantern number 54, written by Ron Mars, in which Kyle Rayner, the current Green Lantern, comes home to his apartment to find that his girlfriend Alexandra had been killed by the villain Major Force and stuffed into a refrigerator. Simone and her colleagues then developed a list of fictional female characters that had been killed, maimed, or depowered, in particular in ways that treated the female characters as mere devices to move forward a male character story arc rather than as a fully developed character in their own right. Remember that. It may come up later. Heir to the Jedi by Kevin Kern is an elite company. It is only the second Star Wars novel to be written completely from a first-person point of view, the only other being Michael Stackpole's I, Jedi, which was 23 years ago. That book followed Rogue Squadron veteran Corrin Horn as he learned the ways of the Force in order to save his wife, but is, of course, no longer canon. But this book, well, okay, before I start, I should mention I listened to the audiobook on this one, Unabridged, read by Mark Thompson. It may have shaded my opinion of the book a little. In fact, I know it did. Anyway, so Heir to the Jedi, okay, one more thing. This book was written before slash during the Disney purchase of Lucasfilm. It 100% was supposed to be a Legends book. I don't care what they say. Uh, I don't know how much they had to change to make it fit with the new canon. But to be fair, new canon didn't exist yet. So that was probably kind of difficult. But this is technically the first book, I think, of the new canon, even if it was never intended to be. Even down to the title, Heir to the Jedi is supposed to be kind of an echo of Heir to the Empire. Heir to the Jedi is told from the point of view of Tatooine's own Luke Skywalker. Orphan, farmer, bush pilot, whiner, son of a Jedi, rescuer of princesses, blower-upper of Death Stars, and ultimately, cranky old man who dies alone sitting on a rock. It takes place after Star Wars, but before The Empire Strikes Back, but if you really look at the timeline, this takes place like maybe weeks after Star Wars, maybe a month. Following the Battle of Yavin, Luke Skywalker and R2 were sent on a mission to Rodia by Akbar to open a secret supply line for the Alliance. While Rodia is under Imperial control at the moment, Leia suggests that the Chiku clan may help, and they're, they're very skilled at manufacturing weapons, armor, and other hardware that the rebels need and could use. Luke is assigned a yacht uh, called the Desert Jewel because his X-Wing would kind of give him away if he went to Rodia. And he's accompanied by Nakari Kellen, the daughter of a biotech magnet and the owner of the ship. The two chat about growing up on desert worlds. Uh, Luke, of course, Tatooine and Nakari's homeworld of Pasher. Uh, sand is not discussed, but the hatred of it is, of course, implied. Unable to travel to Rodia directly, they plot a course through several different hyperspace lanes. And on one stop, they encounter two TIE fighters chasing a freighter. Even though it will endanger the mission, Luke helps out anyway because, you know, Luke. And he 
vapes the ties and hopes Akbar won't yell at him when he gets home. Luke seems kind of scared of Akbar in this book. <laughs> Akbar seems a little, kind of scares him a little bit. Uh, afraid that the imps have been alerted, they change their course and punch it straight to Rodia. There, Luke meets a female Rodian named Lenit Cheku, who leads him and R2 to a secret underground marketplace thing. And there he meets another Rodian named Tanich, whose uncle was a Jedi, although he apparently knew his uncle, and let's add Jedi recruitment to the list of things that no writers can agree on anymore. And because this is Star Wars and feels smaller than Rhode Island sometimes, Tanich tells Luke that his uncle's life had been saved by none other than Anakin Skywalker during the Clone Wars. And he also knows about Obi-Wan Kenobi. They take an unnecessary diversion to visit the Rodian uncle's grave and get attacked by a large predator called a guest, and Luke uses the old dead... Le- uh, I'm not sure why this sequence is in here, but it is. Uh, Luke learns that the Empire has issued a planet-wide alert for the Desert Jewel, and so they bug out, headed back to the Rebel fleet. Oh, and Luke thinks Nakari is cute, and she probably thinks he's cute. I haven't mentioned her too much but yet, but I'm going to lay it out there because the book does it immediately. Nakari is Luke's love interest. I'm sure it will work out just fine, and we won't find her shoved into a whirlpool at the end. After returning to the fleet, Luke meets with Akbar and Leia. He apologizes for blowing his cover, but Leia tells him that that ship that he saved was actually rebel help, and it has brought intelligence that the Empire is holding a given cryptographer named Drusel, captive on the planet Denon. The given managed to pass a coded message along to the rebels and is offering to work for the rebellion if they can evacuate her family. Since Leia has assigned Major Bren Derlin, and oh, that name is a blast from the past. I once wrote an uh, entire outline about a book about Bren Derlin and his commandos in the days after. Anyway, sorry. But uh, played by uh, John Ratzenberger in Empire Strikes Back, Cliff Clavin himself. But anyway, uh, she's assigned Bren Derlin and his crew to relocate the Givens family, and she sends the mission of rescuing the Given to Luke. Uh, Luke asks Leia if he can put some more guns on the Desert Jewel uh, for the mission, and she's like, nah, this is the rebellion. Do you think we got cash? Nakari proposes searching for like a long lost like crystal collection crew in the deep core world of Shah Karat for her father uh, in order to get her father to pay credits to upgrade the ship. And this is where it starts to feel like a video game where you like doing fetch quests to like upgrade your gear. Uh, This again seems unnecessary, but Akbar signs off. Luke, Nakari and R2 travel to Pasher where they meet her father, Fayette. Nakari convinces him to hire them for the job of finding the collection crew, and he outfits them with this new prototype armor suits, which is good because the environment where they're going is garbage. Uh, Fayette sends his daughter and Skywalker to the planet Fex, where high silica and mineral soil content have resulted in the native fauna sprouting crystal-like like spikes and horns and stuff. Fayette reveals that the first expedition lost three of their members to the planet's dangerous predators. Luke and Dakari make sure to get strapped and armored up before venturing out. They land and find that most of the crew have been killed by these creatures called skull borers. Uh, Luke and Dakari are attacked by several of the skull borers. They manage to kill the predators, but one of Dakari's hands suffers some serious tissue damage, and Luke and Dakari manage to evacuate the last surviving crew member before heading home. They return to Pasher, and Fayette deposits a large sum of money into an account for Luke and Dakari. While Dakari's injuries are tended to, Luke kind of like hangs out at a hotel, but then eventually they get it together and they go buy some weapons for the ship. Oh, and Luke can like do minor force powers in this. There's a lot of attention on him moving a noodle. Like that's his big Jedi power in this book, moving noodles. They end up going and meeting with Tanich, the the gun dealer, and uh, using the reward money, they get the desert jewel all jacked up and ready to ride or die. After the latest episode of Pimp My Space Yacht, they head to Denon, where they're supposed to meet a contact by going to his noodle restaurant and ordering Karelian buckwheat noodles with Rancor sauce. To my recollection, Rancor sauce is not really defined, but everyone seems to think it's real gross. 
they do this. And then Saket, who's their contact, provides them with info and finding Drusel. We haven't even found Drusel yet. Akbar and Leia also tell them that Drusel wants her family to be evacuated for the remote to the remote oceanic world of Amareth. Before leaving, 3PO tells Luke and Nakari about given etiquette, explained, explaining that they greet each other with mathematics and they object to approximations. Just to remind you, Luke thinks Nakari is pretty and there is much awkward farm boy flirting. Did this kid not get any on Tatooine? I find that hard to believe. He's 19. He's a good looking kid. He's a good pilot. He's talented. I'm sure he had a girlfriend or two back in Anchorhead. In this book, his ability to talk to women is worse than his ability to pick up power converters on time. During their trip, Luke opens up to Nakari, letting her know about his quest to be a Jedi and the doubts he has. They arrive on Denon and head to a noodle stall. <laughs> After getting giving the code, they have a nice dinner during which, like I explained above, he uses his powers to move a noodle. This scene is kind of a cross between Anakin force feeding fruit to Padme and that scene in Lady and the Tramp. There's so much story in this thing for a slight book. Um, eventually, they get to Drusel, who is the given who communicates primarily through talking about math, who Mark Thompson, for some reason, decides talks like Edna Mode from The Incredibles, and it was incredibly distracting. Are you upset? Drusel asked. No, just thoughtful. I searched for a phrase to express my appreciation. Your ideas are giving me the benefit of a new perspective without the meditation. Indeed? Why were you meditating then, if not for a different perspective? With the ISB hot on their tail, they run through the sewers where they get attacked by more monsters and then by the imps. And of course, they get away and it turns out Nikari is pretty useful in a fight. They get the ship ready to get the hell off the rock, but R2 receives news that the Empire has imposed a system-wide blockade to seize rebel spies, and, and they have dispatched interdictor cruisers. The gang managed to flee the Imperial blockade, so I guess it's no biggie, but upon exiting hyperspace in the Exodine system, not the Exegol system, did not exist yet, the Exodine system, the Desert Jewel is pursued by 20 pirate starfighters. It was good to see some nice uh, kind of old cannon era cloak shape fighters mentioned. That was kind of cool. Uh, but Luke wards them off using the ship's new spicy guns. While traveling through hyperspace, the Desert Jewel is yanked out by an immobilizer 418 cruiser, which of course is equipped with four large gravity wells. The Desert Jewel engages in a dogfight with the Interdictor cruiser and its TIE fighter escorts. And guided by the force, Luke flies the yacht over the cruiser's port side, firing concussion missiles at their gravity wells and blows the whole thing up. Drusel kind of looks at him afterwards and is like, you're a Jedi, ain't you? After another stop, they end up in the city of Tonek on the planet of Kupo, where <laughs> they are to meet yet another contact whom Luke doesn't trust. He enlists Drusel's help in slicing the computer systems to obtain some information, but R2 discovers some kind of malicious code. This part's a little fuzzy to me, but Luke confronts Drusel uh, because she thinks he thinks she might be a spy. She reassures him that she is not a spy, but that she worked out the but that she has, however, <laughs> worked out the location of the Alliance fleet through mathematical calculations which is equal parts terrifying, impressive, and freaking impossible. But, you know, Star Wars. During their time at, at Taketh, Drusel discovers that one of Azur, that's the contact on this planet, it's very, there's a lot of people that are like contacts in this book, that one of Azur's employees have been, has been secretly communicating with the Empire. Luke and Dakari track him down and stun him and then also capture his Godel ISB handler and they lock them up with R2 standing watch and I don't remember what happens to them afterwards. I'm sure they tell you. While waiting in the hotel room for a new engine, Luke spends time with Nakari and Luke reassures Nakari that he does not have feelings for Princess Leia, which is utter bullshit, opining that he is just a farm boy and that she is just a princess, which just saying that 
makes it very clear that you have feelings. Uh, Luke also tells Nakari that he used the Force to help him destroy the Death Star. While they both want Vader defeated, Luke doesn't seem to share the same level of hatred for Vader that Nakari has because she lost her mother to him. Somewhere in here, Luke and Drusel discuss meditation. The scientifically minded Drusel is baffled by the notion of the Force, which cannot be mathematically described. To prove his powers are real, he moves a noodle again. I guess if the Jedi freedom fighter thing doesn't work out, he could find gainful employment at a ramen stall. Though the Desert Jewel's repairs are almost complete, Drusel, who has been monitoring the Imperial communications, learns that the Empire has blockaded all outgoing traffic. Oh, and there's another immobilizer for, there's another immobilizer cruiser in the system too. Realizing that the Empire is on their tail, Luke, Nakari, and Drusel risk it and plot an entirely new hyperspace lane between Kupo and Amareth. And yes, these are a bunch of planets you've never heard of. At the hangar, Azur uh, informs them that he has changed their transponder signal, allowing them to pose as diplomatic couriers as opposed to whatever they were before. However, he's then killed by a mechanic there who is accompanied, accompanied by a bounty hunter that are coming after them. And during the, a brief gun battle, Skywalker shoots the mechanic while McCary finishes off the bounty hunter. The Desert Jewel rockets into space. They somehow manage to dodge the interdictor. Uh, and thanks to the Givens goodwill hunting on Spice math brain, they figure out a new hyperspace route that gets them the criff out of there. Somewhere around here, or before, I don't remember, Nakari pretty much tells Luke that she likes him. He is flummoxed and super freaking dorky about it. After entering Amrath's atmosphere, Luke and Nakari find that the Desert Jewel is being pursued by several bounty hunters. They crash land the ship in a lagoon, and they end up having to escape in a raft. The second bounty hunter ship attempts to pursue them, but is devoured by an Amarath giant eel. And then the team make it ashore, but discover that six other bounty hunters are ser still searching for them. Since Drusel is a valued target, Luke and Nakari run ahead of her to try to protect her. But then Nakari tells Luke to stay with Drusel and head for the high ground, which always goes well for Skywalkers. And while she flanks his side and deals with the pursuers. Luke heads out and a bounty hunter comes at Luke, but Nakari shoots him down, saving him. And then he's got a scene with Drusel where Luke's like, oh, her and I are not mates. And we're, oh, we're, where Drusel calls Nakari his mate. And he's like, we're not mates. And he seems super offended, despite the fact that he's been thinking of nothing but mating with her since chapter two. So the three of them try to ambush the remaining hunters. They do a pretty good job. It gets a little crazy. Some grenades go off and Nakari is killed in the attack right into the fridge. Luke doesn't see her die, but he feels it. But he also later finds her body. And there's a lot in this book about what Luke does with her body, which made sense, but also was kind of uncomfortable. Either way, after Nakari sacrifices her life to make Luke a better person, which is the truest act of love any woman can bestow upon a struggling fictional hero, Luke makes quick work of the remaining hunters, letting them kill each other off because they have some kind of feud or whatever. Following the elimination of the bounty hunters, Luke re recovers Nakari's body, like I said, and wants to return her to her father, who has already lost his wife and is having kind of a hard go of it. He grieves beside Nakari's body, and this is um this is the best part of the book. Um, Luke cries. Owen Baru, Ben, Biggs. He has not had time to mourn them because there has always been another threat, another adventure, and another mission to keep his mind off of it. I don't know if this moment fits in this book, but I really enjoyed it. Luke reunites the Drusel with her family with the help of Bren Derlin, who has made sure that her family is safe even after the loss of a few of his soldiers. Derlin is also saddened to learn about the loss of Nakari, who had taught him and his men how to wield firearms, because I guess why not? Drusel provides the Alliance with intelligence and imperial codes and search patterns, including slicing programs for low-level 
Imperial encryption or something. I don't know. And before transferring the data to R2, Drusel gets Luke's permission to take the captured bounty hunter ship for her family. And as if Luke gives a shit, but she takes the ship. On the way home, on Berlin's Quirlian Corvette in the mess hall, Luke has a bowl of noodles and uses the force to telekinetically roll the noodles around the fork. Although Nakari showed that progress is possible without a teacher, Luke longs for a mentor. He resolves to become a Jedi like his father, though it may take him many years. Thank the Force that Nakari died so that Luke could decide that he really, really wanted to become a Jedi. Totally worth the sacrifice, and my god that I just listened to a ten and a half hour fridging. Go fuck yourself, book. The end. <laughs> There's a moment in this book where Luke compares something to water skiing. I am not aghast that the star that Star Wars would have such a thing. Why wouldn't they? But I am very confused by the fact that the freaking farm boy from the desert would have any idea what water skiing felt like. This book is full of crap like that. Luke is smart. Luke is clever. He is kind. He is heroic. Whiny sometimes, sure, but he's the best bush pilot in the Outer Rim and unbelievably gifted by the midi-chlorians running around in his blood. But he's not an educated man. He should not be presented as an educated man. He should not be using the words he is using in this book. Do you see a lot of colleges on Tatooine? At 19, Luke was living at home with his boomer aunt and uncle, dreaming of running off to military school. Does this moof milker even have a GED? This is a danger in first-person books, is that the character doesn't sound like Luke. In the audiobook, Thompson does a pretty good, if not inconsistent, Hamill impression, but the words that come out of his mouth seem to be the authors, not the characters. Why is it so hard to write Luke Skywalker? Is it because he should be dumber than the authors want him to be? Not dumber, but more naive. Naive. Than the be? Yeah, he's supposed to be very, very naive, and the first thing I thought was, why would Leia send him on this diplomatic essentially diplomatic mission to Rhodia, he's he's fresh off the farm still. He just blew up the Death Star. He doesn't know anything about anything at this point. Why are we sending him to to negotiate with Rhodians that we have diplomats for? Surely Leia is not the only diplomat in, in their pocket. I almost choked when Luke compared something to water skiing. <laughs> I will buy that he has maybe heard of it. But the fact that he would that that would be the first thing that occurs to him to compare something to is preposterous. I would have loved it though if they changed it to a jet ski and pulled like a Loki. It's a jet ski. It's the perfect <laughs> marriage of form and function. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, I guess if you grow up on a desert planet and you hear about yeah, man, people go around and he says it feels like water skiing. That's true. And I was like, you don't know that. Maybe he took a break and went to to a water planet and did a little water skiing after he blew up the Death Star. How long? How long after Yavin is this? <laughs> this can't be more than a month or two, right? It's not. If you follow the comics, there's a um, very small window to fit this in. Yeah, you know, you talked earlier. I, I think with this book too, it's it's really important to realize when it was written. It was originally written to be part of a trilogy. It's the third book actually in the trilogy called Empire and Rebellion. And the other books are a Han Solo book and a Leia book, which both came out. And both are legends now. But for some reason, they chose... I mean, this is the last one to come out, so it kind of hit them, and they just kind of went, and we're just going to go It just happened to come out after the sale. It just happened to. Yeah, yeah. So It's got some expanded universe-y references, I would say. Like I said, like... I mean, Brenderlin Lynn is a canon character, but like he was never a character. To, I haven't heard him mentioned in anything post post 2015. Mm-hmm. 
They mentioned the Clone Wars a few times, but other than that and a couple of the races that didn't show up until Clone Wars era, I, I don't see much that makes this Disney canon era. Yeah, but there's not much that doesn't, though. I, what I kept thinking was, was this whole book written just for Luke not to have a crush on Leia? Yeah. Like the whole thing. Is that the reason this I mean, book exists? I was... Not joking, the fridging infuriated me that this entire book turns out to just be a story about Luke meeting a girl and her dying and her death making him be extra dedicated to becoming a Jedi. That's so antiquated. Uh-huh. It's so, I know this was six years ago. I don't care. <laughs> it was six, six years ago, it was gross. It's even grosser now. I was so angry at the fridging. They can find a way to work her out of the story without the death. And they definitely don't, I definitely don't want to hear him ruminating at the end about her death and how it's going to make him a better Jedi. That shit was terrible. <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah, it really was. What happens in this book? Um, it's, it took me like 10 minutes to read that, but what happens? It's, um, it's a lesson in not talking to NPCs because by the time he goes to find Drusilla, I was like, oh yeah, that's what they were supposed to be doing. It's like when I play Skyrim and I get so wrapped up in in side quests that I'm like, I don't, I don't remember what I was supposed to be doing. Is there a dragon in this game? I don't remember anymore. <laughs> yeah, yeah. My favorite thing in Skyrim is when I accidentally do a main quest story, and I'm like, oh wait, but that was oh okay, Oops. crap. I just advanced the story. I wasn't meaning to do that. I just wanted to take over the thieves guild. I didn't realize. Yeah, there's a lot of that in here. Every everywhere they go, they just got a new contact. Yeah. <laughs> I really liked for the, like the five or 10 pages when R2-D2 turned into a torture droid. <laughs> it's like, what is happening? Like yeah. the guy's like bound up on the ground in the apartment. And if he tries to move, like R2 flips out and like shocks him. And, like they so say like R2 is enjoying it. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> R2's feisty, but yeah. he's not BT, you know? Um, what do you, but what do you think Kern was trying? Kern, sorry. What do you think Hearn is trying to do with the book that, you know, the details aside, the voice is off. The story is kind of is, is bland, but what is he trying to do? If it's a trilogy that's trying to, and I had that very same idea years ago to do a trilogy that was princess scoundrel and farm boy. What, what is he trying to get across in this Luke's gains in this are so tight. Is it because Luke is locked in Amber? Like his power level is set at this point. And we know it's not going to go up significantly until he meets Yoda. Like, is there is there a thing where, like, he can't grow at all because of the movies? Yeah, like, you need him to grow just enough to call his lightsaber to him in the Wampa Cave. Yes. But you but can't it. let him go too much further. So, yeah, I can learn. And, you know, I think that's kind of what the stupid noodle thing is, is him kind of getting that force power and concentrating on it. Yeah. But there, yeah, there's not a whole lot you can do with Luke between those two books. Now, I say that while also if, you know, you've read Destination Hoth, the Marvel sequence between, they handled all of this time very well. Yes. Which also raises questions on why this book is canon or how it fits in. But <laughs> Right. It's literally, I, I read about the, the timeline of this book and they said, if you actually look at the comics, this book takes place like two weeks after the Battle of Yavin. <laughs> like it has to take place almost immediately or for it to fit in in front of the comics. You know? Yeah. No, I mean, like I said, like, you know, joke aside, I really do think this book is to separate him and Leia. 
It definitely feels very – I mean, listen, I have no problem with Luke having a love interest, even if Leia's still in the picture. There's that moment in Star Wars. See, I I, I actually think by the end of Star- A New Hope, Luke's romantic thoughts about Leia are gone. There's that great scene in The Falcon where he can – he just – there's there's no way Luke isn't Luke is sitting there while Han and Leia are bickering while they're trying to get away from the Death Star, like in the Falcon. Easy, you call that easy. They're tracking us. Not this ship, sister. At least the information R2 is still intact. What's so important? What's he carrying? The technical readouts of that battle station. I only hope that when the data's analyzed, a weakness can be found. It's not over yet. It is for me, sister. Look, I ain't in this for your revolution, and I'm not in it for you, Princess. I expect to be well paid. I'm in it for the money. You needn't worry about your reward. If money is all that you love, then that's what you'll receive. And there's the sexual chemistry, the sexual tension is so through the roof that even Luke is like, you know, there's that really sad moment where... Your friend is quite a mercenary. I wonder if he really cares about anything or anybody. I care. But he's obviously already lost the race. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he is already, it is very clear that Leia Organa likes bad boys. <laughs> and as much as, you know, as Sen joked about the kiss between Luke and Leia, like, uh, for me at least, like, watching it, the reaction Luke gives... Yeah, it's a prank. It is very much not about Leia and more about Han. And, like, who's the man? <laughs> like, that's what I think that's what Luke's doing. Like, I think, I actually think Luke's playing along with her. I think she does that obviously to make him jealous or to pretend, and Luke plays into it. They're just trolling him. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like he's telling totally to it to Han. Yeah, yeah. And Luke's part of the troll. Luke's not proud. Leia gave him a kiss. Luke yeah. is trolling Han. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because he, he's he understands what just happened. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess you don't know everything about women yet. To me, the most I, I don't know. Splinter of the Mind's Eye is, I think, the book that most explicitly ever talked about Luke's crush on Leia. Like, he doesn't mm-hmm. even, like, try to confess his love for her in that book, remember? But she's unconscious. Well, it's the first girl he's ever seen, so... That is not true! <laughs> <laughs> but There's according- no way. There's no way he's not cruising around and Lance Speeder's getting laid on Tatooine. This There's book no sure way. makes it feel like that's, you know, oh, you're the second girl I've ever met. I, I have to like you. We know he hangs out with girls at Tashi Station, because... Cammy and, yeah. and Wendy. Yeah, yeah, like, Cammy and Wendy, we know them. Like, there's uh, there's got to be girls in Anchorhead. Mm-hmm. I grew up in, you know, this small town in Ohio. I left when I was 13. And then about seven or eight years later, I reconnected with a buddy of mine from back then who had gone into the Army. And he was actually, he was in Atlanta for the Olympics uh, when he was with the Army. And he came by and said hi. And I asked him, I was like, what was high school like? I grew up expecting to go to a particular high school in this particular town, right? And with these particular kids. And that ended up not happening because I moved. And I said, well, what was high school like? He's like, I don't know. We drank and we drove around and we, we f***ed. And I was like, that sounds great. And he's like, it was for a couple months. He's like, and then people started getting pregnant and people started having crap wrecks. And he's like, it sucked, you know? But when you're in a small town like that, what do you do? You get laid and you drink and you cruise around, you know? Like, I would also just like to point out to our listeners you can always tell when we don't enjoy a book because the amount of cursing increases exponentially. <laughs> I apologize. You're I correct. know. Chad, you're the one who put the PG-13 stamp on I this do, thing. I do, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll bleep out one or two of them. <laughs> it's only when we don't like a book and we're like, ah. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we took the, we, I mean, listen, we took this, we took the, uh, we, we took the training wheels off on Freefall. Yeah. That was intentional, but this one's just got me a little riled up. Like, 
I guess like maybe the ending wouldn't bother me so much if the if the book's just bland. Well, it yeah. doesn't even really feel like a Star Wars book. And I looked up the author and he writes fantasy novels. This is his only dip into the Star Wars universe. It doesn't feel like Star Wars. He didn't write the other two, right? No. What were the other two books you were talking about? So the other is Razor's Edge, which is uh, yes. okay. the Leia book. And then Honor Among Thieves, which is Han Solo and Chewbacca. And that's Wells and Corey. And those are terrible books, honestly. I didn't like Honor Among Thieves, but I don't know if I ever, fin- I don't know if I ever finished it. Oh, that was the um, Expanse guys? Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Or, or Corey's the Expanse. Because Corey's a, uh, a pen name for two guys. Yeah, James S.A. Corey. It's like a combination. It's a combination oh, yeah, yeah. of the two of them who created the Expanse. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of this weird time in the EU, you know, right before the sale where they were kind of doing this, right? They gave us these books. We got Tarkin. They were starting to like try to fill in some holes here and there. It's a Um, weird time to do that. (laughs) It was a weird, you know. To go so far back when they had gone so far to the future. Maybe they got to the point in the future where they just, they couldn't bring themselves to go any further. And what's so crazy about this book, if you told me this book was written in like 1993, I'd be like, okay, I get it. Yeah. But this book was written six years ago. Well, came it, out six years ago. It That's struck me too. It felt insane. old to me. Mm-hmm. Well, it feels like an expanded universe book. It does. Because yeah. it is. <laughs> it is. It takes place in that world. They may have gone in and tweet. Because remember, Force Awakens wasn't even out yet. Aftermath wasn't out yet. There was no new canon when this book came out. So there was no, so they couldn't like adapt it to fit to the new canon particularly mm-hmm. well, but they also had to vanilla it to dissociate it from the old canon as much as possible. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it lives in this weird world where it's kind of, it's part of neither. Which Tarkin is, has some of the similar issues, but not as much as this one does. Because like the only references I caught in this was like about Brenda Lynn, but Brenda Lynn's a character from the movies. Mm-hmm. So like they were like, okay, you can keep him in there. It's so devoid of any continuity, really. It's devoid of any world building. But it, again, it can't have any because they there's no way that Hearn knows what JJ is working on. <laughs> right? He wrote this book with the expanded universe behind him, and then they're like, oh, you gotta you gotta tweak it to fit with the uh, with the new canon. What's the new canon? We don't know yet. So, so it ends up being very vanilla. Yeah. The most kind of world building you get is them just talking about, we got to find a new base. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we know sure. where that goes. <laughs> um, that was in the Walt Simonson comics back in 1978. Or <laughs> I yeah. mean, the original Star Wars, like comic strips. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember, you know, remember the old, co- the, the comic strips, not the comic books, the comic yeah, strips. Oh, yeah. A lot of those early comic strips, there were storylines about them finding Hoth. That story has been told a million times. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this book lives in this weird ether where it's it doesn't have a home. And it's not... I, I get, The title's a big issue for me, too. Because I expect with a title like that, I expected something grander. I, I know. I don't expect the heir to the Jedi to be noodle mover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like it doesn't... I want something big. I want something bold. I want something that I know can't change the course of history, but I want something that enhances that history that, Uh that, that deepens it. Like all this stuff that we love reading where no, it doesn't change. We talked about this with rebel rising. Rebel rising doesn't change anything. Uh It just deepens it. And this doesn't do that. I think it might've helped a little bit at least if rather than 
having the noodles be his kind of foray into the force if they did more of being able, you know, to feel it or explain it, which the High Republic does very well, like explaining yeah. how people feel the force and tap in and all that kind of stuff. And you get a little of that with the meditation stuff, but that might have helped some, or even, good Lord, if you found a Jedi book and read something i don't know something it's it feels so incredibly small which is fine i don't mind small and especially if you're gonna say heir to the jedi which clearly is supposed to bring up or make you think about heir to the empire i mean that's very purposeful yes yeah they've said that and yeah i mean pair the two yeah because it's launching the new era right right you know so that's what you know heir to the empire launched not technically, but launched the expanded universe. Then this was supposed to launch the new canon. But yeah, there's such a vast difference in quality aside. There's just a vast difference in, in the ambition. Yeah, the scope and grandeur, yeah. And the intent, too. Mm. Like, I don't get the intent of this book at all. Yeah, this launches nothing for me. I don't understand what its purpose is. And I think, I mean, at parts, it seemed like he was trying to be funny, but none of his jokes ever landed. Well, I had a weird experience. So I got the audiobook on this because I thought that because it's a first person story, which again, this is only the second time in Star Wars. And I want to talk to you guys about what you felt about that in a second. But I, I thought since it's a first person experience and Mark Thompson does pretty good voices and he does a pretty good Luke that I would listen to the book instead of reading it. And I did. And he, like I said, he does a passable Mark Hamill. Here's my problem though. Two thirds of the characters in this book or two thirds of the lead characters are female, even though it's all from Luke's point of view. And and most of it is being told by Luke. He does female voices for the female parts and it makes the romance awkward. It makes, it it just ruins everything (laughs) to me. Like, like I said, uh, what's her name? The given sounded like Edna mode. He gave her this crazy accent where she sounds like the, the, the chick that makes the costumes on in the Incredibles. Your mate is an exceedingly good sniper. Drusel said, The odds were high she would eliminate the threat before we had cause to worry. My mate? Nakari had a weird accent. Kind of this, I can't even explain it. Like the voices he created for them were very distracting. I I wonder what these books like, would it be so bad to like bring in a second? I mean, I guess they just want to hire one person, but I just wonder like, can't they bring in someone to do the female voices? (laughs) Because it, it made the romance seems very strange. Um, <laughs> They'd never believe we'd split up and put their big money target under the protection of an astromech, right? So they'll chase you, and I'll pick them off. You just move as fast as you can. I nodded. Right, I said. And we both took a couple of steps in different directions, thinking only of the mission. But then we stopped, thinking of each other, turned back and froze both of us waited for the other to speak first and we each made one or two halting starts simultaneously which caused us to stop and wait for the other to continue and the awkwardness escalated with every fraction of a second because star wars audiobooks just aren't just aren't audiobooks they're productions they have music they have sound effects and so you're in it and then he's doing this romantic scenes together with this weird voice and i was like man i'd much rather have read it I'd much rather have put the voice, ha- had my own voices going on because his voice is kind of messed up for me. So I will admit that the audiobook did not work well for me. Mm. What does uh, Drusel sound like? 
like I said, like Edna Mode. Which is not at all what I picture. No, it's yeah. very strange. It's very strange. Nakari's voice just has kind of this spacey kind of, I don't know. I am Nakari Kellen, daughter of Fayette Kellen. I can provide you with first-hand knowledge of what my father called the most significant biological find in decades and furnish coordinates to find the source. Nakari, what are you doing? I said. Getting us an engine, she replied. It ill-defined somewhere in Europe accent, you know? <laughs> so what did you guys, you know, I have no problem with it. I think it's interesting. I th- wish they would do it more just because um, then we'd be used to it. But 23 years between first person books. What do we think about telling Star Wars stories in the first person? Only because it's so rare. I don't like it. You don't like it? Uh, I think with Star Wars, obviously the movies, but most of the books too, you're very used to Star Wars jumping between several groups doing things. And so when that's not happening and you're just following one all the way through, it feels off. I can see that, yeah. It keeps the cast a lot smaller. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of the... um. The Darth Vader, the Lucino Vader book takes place inside Vader's head, but we're still jumping out to other places and other people. And I don't mind scenes or, or parts being from first person, you know, going hearing what's going on inside a character's head. But I don't know that that's a place I want to live, and especially if it's going to be written in this way. Um, I don't feel like the story was compelling enough and the things that we saw inside of Luke's head were compelling enough. But I, I feel like that could be part of the problem with the book is that it's in first person. But yeah, I, t- I like being able to go to different people's points of views and perspectives. And I'm used to that in Star Wars books. And and if there were a really well-written first person point of view book from a really compelling story, maybe it would work. But this isn't it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, my only published novel at this point is a first person, you know, science fiction book. And it is it's difficult. It's a difficult thing to undertake uh, because you do want it to you're, you're writing this line, right? You need your character to be a narrator, but you also need him to be a character. So you do fudge a little bit on the things they, you know, like Luke spent a lot of time describing people's clothing in this book when normally there's no way in hell Luke Skywalker would notice what kind of boots someone is wearing. But the author through Luke is trying to paint the scene. And so they have Luke describe the boots, which is this kind of artificiality. You kind of have to go with a little bit, but it does limit you. You can't cut to the bad guys. You can't do what, what, you know, some of the things that Star Wars does really well, which is those, you know, think about the battles where everyone's in three or four different places at once and working together. You can't do any of that stuff from a first person book. So the book needs to dive deep if it's going to work. Right. It needs to be a good story. Sure. This should have been like a I think if you do a Star Wars first person book, like I would I would read like a noir, like a star, like a detective story. Like that's something you could do first person. I think that would work like a Coruscant. They had that two book series called like Coruscant Nights right before the Mm -hmm. Disney sale. That was like kind of that, but not very good. But you could do something like that. I liked I Jedi. Well, and you know who does it well, too is some of the narration in Jedi Lost, where you kind of get that Asajj Ventress first person. Yeah, her direct thoughts. Yeah, the way they kind of handled that, I thought was done really well and was really effective. Because there's a big difference, though, between hearing a character's thoughts and the book being in first person. Right. With this, too. I think what it was missing for Luke also is, you know, if this takes place two 
months or weeks or however long after Yavin, a short time, Luke has left Tatooine. He's gone to Yavin. And for the first time, Luke is actually seeing the galaxy. Yeah. What he's always dreamed about. And you don't get that sense of they never tap into that wonder that Luke should have. Like he's finally seeing the galaxy and he doesn't seem that impressed by it. <laughs> like he's just kind of like, yep, there's so and so. He's not naive enough. Yeah. Not even in a bad not like he should be getting fleeced by. I mean, he's clever, he's he's savvy, but you're right. He doesn't he's too, for lack of a better word, he's too worldly. Mm-hmm. Remember when we were reading A Certain Point of View and I didn't have that segment where, what book was it? Oh, maybe it was Splinter of the Mind's Eye where Luke was like, well, back when I was like reading about history. Oh, yeah, it was Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Yeah, where like, like I would watch these, you know, where Luke all of a sudden, like Luke knew a ton about the galaxy because of Holos. He was like watching at home. I'm like, no, no, nope. he's a farm boy on a do nothing piece of shit desert planet that happens to also be the center of the galaxy, it turns out. Um, the voice still has to be right. And when it's a pre-established character like this, it's probably super hard to get across. That That's the one defense I will say is if it's a pre, like if this was a character we had never heard of, we wouldn't be talking about how the voice wasn't right. We may not like the book, but we wouldn't be comparing it to something to a voice that we know. Mm-hmm. But he, he should be in awe of something he sees in this book. Nothing that happens to him strikes him with any any awe or wonder. I'm like, but you, you, you're meeting your first aliens. He's never flown a starfighter till Yavin. Well, and that's what I see. I'd say, like, you're going from playing a T-16 to a pleasure yacht. Like, this should be yeah. a huge, like, this is awesome. Like, And there's a couple of moments where he's admiring the ship Yeah, know, in this. He really likes the ship. Not everybody in the galaxy has seen everything. Where's the moment where Luke looks down and go, looks out at the stars and is like, holy crap, I'm out here. I made it. Or even, like, small moments. Like, he's on a planet and looks up and sees one sun. Like right, yeah. That could be such like a powerful thing. I've looked at the first time he goes somewhere that's cold. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) apparently he's been water skiing, so who knows? Yeah, yeah. Maybe Owen and Brew took him on spring break. We don't know. There's no way. There's no way. (laughs) He's like, you want to go surfing? Go surf the Dune Sea, you little bastard. (laughs) Yeah, surf the Dune Sea and check out moisture evaporator six while you're out there. But feel free to ski your ass home. <laughs> because it was a first person book, I would have actually maybe been okay with the mediocre story if the book had just gone a lot deeper uh, with him as a character. Mm. And I just did, I feel like it was afraid to do that. It wasn't allowed to do that. I don't know what. Get into it, man. What was Owen like? Tell me, what was Owen like? What was his relationship with Baru like? I always assumed that his relationship with Baru was better than it was with Owen, but tell me about that. You say. You know, no one wants a story about Luke as a teenager because we know his whole story. I disagree. I do. I want to know what it was like for Luke to grow up on Tatooine. I'm hoping we see a little bit of that in Obi-Wan on the, in, in the series. And I think we will. I mean, we know Edgerton's going to be on it, right? So we're going to see a little bit of that. I guarantee you we're going to see, what, five-year-old Luke, six-year-old Luke? Yeah, there's room in the story for him to have a couple of little, like, Harry Potter-esque yeah. moments, I think, where he taps into the Force without really knowing it. Yeah, like um, Leia does in the Leia novel, right? Mm-hmm. Remember Princess of Alderaan? Leia uses the Force a couple times. She Force jumps. There can be those moments. Plus, like, Tatooine's crazy as hell. <laughs> Tatooine is scary, man. He's going to get into trouble. He's going to, you know, especially with, you know, that reprobate Biggs and Tank and, and Fixer and all those guys he hangs out with. Like, they're going to get into trouble sometimes. 
And so it doesn't have to be giant saving the world adventures, but they can, they can, you know, I mean, they've done some, they used to, at least in the old comics, there was some stuff about him back on Tatooine and there were stories about Biggs and stories about Tank. I don't know if for something called Heir to the Jedi, I just, I wanted, um, I wanted a, I, I wanted a psychological profile of Luke Skywalker mm-hmm. and no one has given us that yet. Claudia Gray, listen, if you're listening, <laughs> High Republic's amazing. But when you get time, just like... I don't know, uh, a Princess of Alderaan type book about Luke or even Bloodlines. Like we have 30 years that we have no idea what he's been doing. I can see Return of the Jedi. E.K. Johnson doing a good one too. Yeah. Teenager stuff, you know, make a YA mm-hmm. book about young Luke. Absolutely read that. When you get to post Return of the Jedi era, we know nothing. We know in five years he meets Grogu and then in 25 years it all goes to hell. That's all we know. Why don't they want to tell us his story? All we've got is uh, he ran around with Ochi and uh, or looking f- with Lando, looking for Ochi, and he found the first. Why? Why did he find the first Jedi temple? What good did that do him? What was the point of it? Why was he trying to get out of it? Like we we learn none of that. We just get these brief sketches of thing of the reason why he's not in the first movie. Well, I mean, he clearly found some books that are yeah, important some for some reason. We don't one hundred percent know why, but. We've never seen anybody read in Star Wars ever. <laughs> never seen it. Have you ever seen anybody in a Star Wars movie kick back with a book? <laughs> How wasn't it in one of the old Republic books where they were like, man, no one's written by hand in, je- in decades, yeah. <laughs> which is ridiculous. But but yeah, he, he he does get his books. That's that's fair that, that uh, Ray ends up stealing. I don't I don't I don't know. I wanted something. I guess it's not called Skywalker, but I wanted Tarkin. I wanted Plagueis. I wanted Princess of Alderaan. I wanted a definitive kind of portrayal of the character. And this is not what this is. This is a very light adventure that has a tiny bit of him struggling with what does it mean to be a Jedi, but not really. No. And he moves some noodles. Like after I finish it, I immediately forgot almost all of it. And the (laughs) only thoughts I've had about it is what the hell is Rancor sauce? Yes. Yes. I was wondering why. They explain it, right? They don't explain it. I was wondering why there's so much Thai food out there because he says it's, you know, one of his noodles that he's eating is like got peanut sauce or something in it, peanut, peanut and garlic. Well, like, oh, good. so there's Thai food in space and they eat a lot of it. I kept thinking really like, good. what is this, Blade Runner? Like, <laughs> Oh, yeah, they kept going. It was very Blade Runner because they kept going to noodle stalls. Yeah. yeah. Is it a Blade Runner or like a 1990s Hong Kong action film? Yeah. Uh, and Nerf Nuggets. What are Nerf Nuggets? <laughs> I'd like to know. Oh, that that's easy. A Nerf is just a Star Wars cow, so yeah, they're just they're cow nuggets. <laughs> I mean, not cow nuggets like they would leave in a field, but like that you would make yeah. out of a cow. Cow nuggets sound gross, whereas chicken nuggets <laughs> don't. I don't know why. Why? <laughs> yeah, I don't know why either. Well, like, I guess like sumi technically would be cow nuggets. Yeah, or yeah, or isn't like a slider a cow nugget almost? Like beef tips. Like, <laughs> beef tips. Yeah, we, we have those. You know, but stuff you would put on a skewer or something. You know, that's that would be it. That would be a beef nugget. <laughs> <laughs> it's just called beef nuggets. Makes me uncomfortable. It's also like the world's worst nickname for your kid. <laughs> beef nugget um, but uh yeah that's all i got if you guys have anything else it was a little bit of a disappointment i'm glad i read it because it would have been nagging at me that i hadn't read wow. it but it was a little bit of a disappointment i mean i did kind of like what's her name Drusilla. um i thought some of that was kind of interesting uh one thing i kind of wish and they kind of glossed over it and that there were members of her species that were in the jedi order but then they wouldn't talk about it like 
they made a weird, she made this weird thing where about like, uh, we don't believe in the force cause it's not math, but yeah, there were some Jedi's from her species and they wouldn't tell us anything. And I was like, well, that sounds kind of interesting. And then it was never mentioned again. I did like though, you know, I am obsessed with, there was a moment where he did talk about how Owen keeps kind of putting off talking about how his father died mm-hmm. and his parents. I like that. That's cause that's an area I'm interested in. I'm interested in Owen Luke, Baru, and who did they tell him his father was? Who did they tell him his mother was? I think that is formative. I think it's interesting. And I just think it's cool to know that, to to tell that story. But we didn't quite get that deep because it's not up to this guy to tell (laughs) those stories, apparently. I love the story of when young Luke is with them. And Uncle Owen has a little too much to drink one night and starts slipping some stuff in that he shouldn't <laughs> say. And Bruce like, shut your mouth. And he's like, your damn father. <laughs> like, he had a braid. <laughs> yeah. Came down here with his hoity-toity braid. Do you know what your father did to those sand people? Yeah. Owen, stop! <laughs> he, la- he came down here with his hoity-toity braid. And listen, listen, I'm going to admit, his girlfriend was hot. Mm-hmm. Owen. Oh, I'm sorry, Baru, but we, we, I'm just saying, I'm just saying facts, Baru. I can see him like just getting all pervy about Padme. Yeah. <laughs> Uncle Owen, tell me about my grandma. Oh, you mean the slave? <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> she made terrible blue milk cheese. Terrible. You know, we talked about this in certain point of view. I want to know how Owen thinks of Shmi. Mm-hmm. Does he think of her as a mother? Does he think of her? Like, what is his, when he looks at Luke growing up, does he see any of Shmi? A woman that he knew and lived with, you know? I can imagine he's not really down with me. Like, well, what's, his- what's the timeline on that? Do we even know, like, when Shmi and Klee got together? How, how long was it after Anakin left? Lord, we don't know because Anakin didn't seem to know nor care. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll come back and free you and, unless I forget. He cared. The Jedi just <laughs> wouldn't let him care. But they've jumped through so many hoops to explain that stupid thing. Why, why uh, Qui-Gon couldn't just go like, no, I'm taking both slaves. What are you going to do, you stupid <laughs> toy Darian? What are you going to do, flap your wings at me? How much better would that scene have been? Like towards the end where it's like, your Jedi tricks don't mi- work on me. Flips out the lightsaber. Yeah. Like, this <laughs> he, does, he does have a certain set of skills. What if Shmi's like a total jerk and we just don't know it? Like she yells at Owen like, my real son is special. You're nothing. Uh, But what are we going to talk about next time, Beth? Hopefully it'll be a little better. Oh, crap. What are we talking about next time? (laughs) Your book, Nate. You're doing the summary next time. I know. (laughs) The shadows. Uh... Next time, we will be reading another High Republic book. We are going to talk about Out of the Shadows by Justine Ireland. Back to the High Republic. Very exciting. Mm-hmm. Still worried about Bell. Keep worrying, man. I know. <laughs> I don't think we're going to hear about Bell till January. He's going to be keeping me up at night. Poor Bell. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks, guys. And thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight. We will talk to you all again soon. You have been listening to a Needless Things podcast. You can follow Needless Things on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and at needlessthingspodcast.com. Love you. Mean it. Uh Uh-huh. Roger, roger.